You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Spits and Suds. This time, a Spits and Suds one-timer, where we sit down with people in the world of hockey and get to know them and and talk in depth about their careers and have some fun and really excited about this episode. I've worked with this man for a long time. And what's really exciting about this interview is some of our better moments talking have been about the great sport of hockey. And as I've promoted this on Spits and Suds, and as I've talked to people around 105.3 The Fan and elsewhere, they say to me, Eric Nadell did hockey? And I'm like, yeah, Eric Nadell was big time into hockey, still is big time into hockey as far as going to the games, and we are so fortunate that he joins us right now. Do you get that same kind of surprise when people find out that previous to the Hall of Fame career that you're currently having that you were involved with the great sport of hockey? And those who don't know have no idea and figure that I probably came up through the ranks like most major league baseball announcers did by doing minor league baseball games. But in fact, it was minor league hockey that uh, enabled me to get to the point where I got the job doing major league baseball, which is crazy and couldn't happen today. I don't think, but uh, it happened some 45 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start at the beginning, early life, growing up as a kid in New York, the home of an original six team. Were you a big Rangers fan growing up? Huge New York Rangers fan. And it actually started the year that I turned eight years old. Um, my dad took me to the old Madison Square Garden to see the Harlem Globetrotters because Wilt Chamberlain played that year for the Harlem wow. Globetrotters. He had left college early and played a year or two with the Globetrotters. So he took me to see the Globetrotters. He'd never been to a hockey game. And over the main entrance to Madison Square Garden was this sign that said, hockey, the fastest game on ice. And there were flames coming out of the words. And I said to my dad, I don't know what that is, but I want to see it. And the very next Sunday, he took me to Madison Square Garden, took me right back to that same arena. And we saw the Rangers play the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I just loved it. all of the color, the sound of the skates, the puck hitting the sticks, the guys hitting each other. And then, you're not going to believe this, in the third period of the game, Johnny Bauer, who was the goaltender for Toronto, who was not wearing a mask. There was only one goalie back then, Jacques Plant, who wore a mask, and he was with Montreal. Johnny Bauer got hit in the forehead with a puck, and it split his forehead wide open. Oh. And there was blood all over the place. And he skated off the ice almost as if nothing had happened. And the players skated around in a circle for about 10 minutes. 
and Bauer came back and played the rest of the game, did not give up a goal, and Toronto beat the Rangers that day 4-3. to three. Wow. Wow. That whole experience for me was just mind-blowing. <laughs> and I became instantly hooked on hockey. So I'm eight years old and obviously too young to go to games by myself and was constantly you know, begging my father to take me to games, you know, just as I was begging him to take me to baseball games during the spring and summer. And we went to a few games, you know, he would, uh, he would take me maybe three or four times a season. And it wasn't until I was 13 that I was allowed to go on my own, where I could go with friends, get on the subway, ride it in from Brooklyn to Manhattan, which was about a half an hour uh, go to games, and uh, we would usually sit in the balcony because with our student ID cards, we could get seats up there for a dollar. Yeah, I mean, some legendary names from the Rangers days that you were watching, Gump Worsley. Yeah, yeah. Roger Bear uh, was the leading scorer for the Rangers back in those days. Um, Cesar Maniago was the backup goalie, and then when the NHL expanded, he went to, to Minnesota to the you know original North Stars. Uh, Andy Bathgate was the big star for the Rangers when I started watching them and he got traded and I was just devastated. You know, I was just a young kid then, and you know, maybe nine or 10 years old and Andy Bathgate got traded to the Maple Leafs. And so I immediately started rooting for the guys who the Rangers had received. I figured these guys must be great if Andy Bathgate got traded for him. And it was, it was Bob Nevin and Dick Duff were the two forwards <laughs> who the Rangers got. So they became my two favorite Ranger players because they replaced Andy Bathgate on the rust. <laughs> wow. Uh, so then you're growing up, and a lot of people don't know, you're an Ivy Leaguer. You're a Brown University guy. Um, what were your choices? Uh, did hockey play a role in that? Well, hockey played a role. Um, when I was looking for schools, I had gotten some really good advice from Bill Mazur, who had the very first sports talk show, I think in America, it was in New York. And uh, he had actually been kind enough to respond to a letter I sent him. And he said, when you're shopping for colleges, the most important thing is to get a college with a radio station where you will get to do a lot of on-air work and get to do the things you want to do. That that's even more important than going to a school like Syracuse, for example, that had a lot of broadcasting yeah. courses. And as I was looking at schools, and it was it was a big deal in our family and our community to try to go to an Ivy League school. But as I was looking at them, I was very conscious of you know what their hockey team was like and whether they broadcast the games and what their radio station was like. And Brown, as it turned out, you know had the number one rated uh, rock station, FM station in all of New England at that time. It had a 50,000 watt FM station. And the only times they weren't playing music was when they were broadcasting either hockey, football, or soccer, the three sports that, that Brown actually broadcast. And they were very good in hockey and soccer, not so good in football. But, you know, it did play a role in my deciding to, to go there as yeah. opposed to some of the other Ivy League schools. Kind of an underrated history in Providence, Rhode Island regarding hockey. Uh, just a rich uh, history now with, you know, the Providence Bruins uh, carry it on. And, you know, when you, I want to talk about your first announcing at Brown University because I will tell you my first experience doing the play-by-play -play was for UMass asked to do it in a fill-in role against Boston University. 
And Eric, at the old Boston University Arena, they put us at one end of the rink. I could barely see the players on the other side, let alone the name <laughs> and the numbers. And this is pre-internet. So, you know, now you can look up and you can see the lines. You know, back then you had to do a lot of memorization. And I'll never forget, Eric, after the first period, the color guy puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you want me to take it from here? <laughs> nice. And I felt you- so bad, like, because I had studied so hard, but at the same time, I had never had those reps to do hockey play-by-play. Fast forward years later, I end up in uh, Houston, and my morning host is a guy named Mark Vandermeer, who at the time of when I was doing fill-in was the director of broadcasting for UMass Athletics. He received all the complaints about a young <laughs> Gavin Spittle. So when he's sitting in the meeting, he's like, why do I know this program director's name? And then it clicked in, you know, 20 plus years prior, I was the flunky doing UMass hockey. And I say that story, which I still laugh about, how long did it take you at Brown to really get the reps as far as, you know, what it takes to be a hockey play-by-play announcer? Well, first let me ask you, were you doing games in the Boston arena that had the egg-shaped rink? Yes. Didn't really even have corners? Yes. Because yes. we worked from there. Brown played Boston University. BU was really good. Really good. And I worked out of that out of that um end zone press box okay okay i I know exactly what you're talking about yeah it was what happened was you know when i got to brown as a freshman the guy who was doing the play-by-play was a junior so he had two more years to do the play-by-play so when i came on they immediately put me on the pregame and the postgame and in the middle of the season the color guy who was a former brown player named terry chapman decided that uh, he was going to quit and spend more time with his family. And all of a sudden, I became the color guy. But in the meantime, I was going to practices every day and doing play-by-play into a tape recorder of the scrimmages, Hmm. which, of course, was not the easiest thing in the world because the guys weren't wearing numbers. They were just wearing uh, colored jerseys uh, showing the lines that they were on. You know, we had a yellow line and a green line and a blue line. And the defenseman, you know, was the red pair and the orange pair and the brown pair. And fortunately, I knew what most of the guys looked like and I could recognize them and call the play that way. I also started going to Brown freshman games and broadcasting those games into a tape recorder because there they were playing actual games with uniforms and numbers. And I could actually get real play-by-play repetitions by doing those freshman games, which weren't generally at the same time as the varsity games. So I was doing color for two years on the varsity games, but practicing on the freshman games. And the guy who was doing the play-by-play, who's one of the best hockey announcers I've ever heard, even to this day, a guy named Jim Schatz, um, he taught me how to do play-by-play the way he had been taught, which is that it's a series of phrases And there are a number of ways that you can describe anything that happens. And once you have all of those phrases at your command, you can just plug them in. For example, a pass. Uh, You could say, Ben, over to Sagan. Or you could say, Ben, feed Sagan. You could say, Ben, cross-ice to Sagan. 
Ben up ahead to Sagan. Ben drops for Sagan. Ben banks it off the boards for Sagan. Ben whips it off the glass for Sagan. Ben winds it around for Sagan. There's a million ways you can say it. Everything that happens in the game can be described with a phrase. And you just have to command those phrases. The master of that, of course, was Doc Emmerich. Yeah. And he would even invent phrases that he would use. Josh Bogorod is very good yes. at being creative and actually inventing phrases. I'll text him all the time and say, did you just make that one up? <laughs> it, listening last night, he he said at one point, he said somebody was coming down the right wing and he said, and he, he can't turn the corner, which is, you know, it's more of a football expression, but he used that one. And one time he said he runs out of real estate. Uh, he's he's got a great use of the language and i was taught to write down the phrases that i heard when i was listening to games the, the bruins had a great announcer then named bob wilson who i could hear i would pick up the st louis blues games with dan kelly from st louis and bruce martin from detroit and i would write down their phrases and then when i was doing these freshman games i would try and incorporate the phrases into the broadcasts hmm. did the Theater of mind aspect, which you do so well on Ranger games here on 105.3 The Fan, did that start to incorporate with hockey as well? In other words, when you're on the radio in hockey, it's a little different than on TV. I mean, you have to describe right side, left side, you know, right corner. I mean, it's a it's a description game. Yeah, and I was really lucky because, you know, growing up uh, listening to hockey, I was listening to Marv Albert, and he was tremendously descriptive as a hockey radio announcer. Uh, you know, he had that staccato delivery, you know, when the Rangers had uh, Rattel and Gilbert and Hatfield, you know, he'd say, you know, Hatfield across the Montreal line. And, you know, he would locate the puck for you, and you could literally picture where the puck was going. And the game was significantly slower in those days because he could mention the name of just about everybody who touched the puck. You can't do that now in the NHL. There's, it's just too fast. Yeah. And guys don't carry the puck as much. You know, It's more of a pinball machine, the way the puck moves around. But the way he did it back then, you really could picture you know, where the guys were on the ice. Yeah, and you had mentioned it, Harvard, Boston University. One of your final years at Brown University, they actually were in the Frozen Four, Boston University, in 1971, uh, went on to uh, win. But those were two very tough teams for Brown to face off against. Yeah, and we did not do well against those. Um, <laughs> Boston University had a guy named Herb Wakabayashi. Wow. Who was really fast, and his name was really hard to say. And, <laughs> and, and they were fantastic. We also made the mistake. Uh, my junior year of thinking that we could play some of those Western teams. And we started the season, my junior year, which was the first year I did play-by-play, -play, the first two games that I ever did play-by-play -play on, actually on the radio, uh, on a varsity game, we went out to Wisconsin and played the University of Wisconsin, and they just destroyed us. It seemed like the entire game, they had a power play, but we were playing at full strength. And we lost like 10 to 1 and I think they scored in double figures both games. It was it was just a, a horrible, a total humiliation. And we also played in a Christmas tournament that year at the Olympia in Detroit, which was extremely exciting for me. Uh, and we played Michigan Tech and Michigan and got 
totally bombed out by those teams as well. We were just really, the leagues were not really comparable back then. You know, the ECAC had maybe three or four teams that could compete with the Western teams, but any team in that, in that Western conference back then, you know, could easily defeat Brown, even though Brown was, you know, a playoff team in the ECAC, just barely. Uh, it wasn't the same caliber of hockey. It was much faster out West. Did Harvard look down on Brown when it came to hockey? He looked down on Brown when it came to everything. <laughs> and we we actually had good games with Harvard. The Harvard press box was also, at the end, yes. was also above one of the goals. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that unusual. We had a, we had a, they called it a press box, but it really wasn't. We had a table in the first row of the seats right at the glass at in Dartmouth. That's where we had to broadcast from. And not only could you not see from there to do a game, but we had to have somebody guarding our equipment and guarding, literally guarding the electric plugs because the students, the Dartmouth students would pull our power on us. And we actually missed an entire period the first time we went up there. And we realized after that we needed to bring a couple of bodyguards <laughs> to make sure that didn't happen again. But trying to call a game from ice level, you're just making stuff up. Yeah, yeah. I, I went in that barn and, uh, yeah, just just historic and, and beautiful. Ted Donato, I haven't had the chance to talk to him. Um, and I think I've told you this story. He's the current head coach of Harvard. And a few years back, they had asked him about the 1980 miracle on ice, and he stopped them quickly and said, that's not the greatest miracle on ice. And they said, we don't, what are you talking about? And he said, the greatest miracle on ice is me graduating from Harvard. <laughs> I'll just, I, I, I want to meet Ted, his son's in the NHL, Ryan. I just want to meet Ted and, and ask him if that story is true because – you know, it, it it's cool that he went back and now is the head coach of hockey. Don Sweeney, um, who's the GM of the Bruins, was a Harvard guy. I mean, Harvard's put out some really good. You don't, you know, when you think of sports, you know, you don't necessarily, you get the rare Ryan Fitzpatrick who makes the leap, but the Ivy League schools have had success when it comes to hockey as far as taking it to the next level. Yeah, even Brown, um, when I was a freshman at Brown, Kurt Bennett, was an upperclassman there. And he went on to play in the National Hockey League, I think, for 12 years. And he was the he was the number one dominant player in Eastern hockey, you know, his last couple of years in school. And he had a brother named uh, Harvey Bennett, who went on to play in the World Hockey Association for a while and also played in the NHL. And these guys were huge. You know, they were, you know, hockey players weren't that big back then, but these guys were 6'4 and, you know, 220, 230. And, you know, we're just too strong for anybody to knock him off the puck. Kurt Bennett would pick up the puck behind the net. And, you know, he was a defenseman, but he would rush the puck. And and literally nobody could could pull him off the puck. He was that much stronger than everybody else in college. And he wound up playing initially for the Blues and then quite a long time for the Flames, I think, when they were still in Atlanta. Hmm. And so you graduate from Brown and then your professional hockey career begins of all places, Muskegon, Michigan, home of the Muskegon. Yeah, Muskegon, Michigan, and the, the, the International Hockey That's League. right, the Mohawks, which would be a name that would not exist today. That's right. They couldn't couldn't use it now. They <laughs> actually had uh, the original name of the team was the Zephyrs because they had a deal with the Zephyr Oil Company, 
and they bought naming rights to the team. Hmm. Uh, but when that deal expired and Zephyr wouldn't uh, renew the deal, they changed the name to the Mohawks. And the jerseys look very much like Chicago Blackhawks jersey. It was, it was an Indian head that was quite similar to the Blackhawks, but not exactly. And the jerseys were blue rather than red. But I was really lucky when I was a senior at Brown, I sent out a, an audition tape, a 20 minute audition tape, uh, highlights of a game between Brown and University of Pennsylvania. And I thought it was my best work. And I kept getting these answers back, you know, with, thank you for your tape. You know, we will keep, we have no openings. We will keep your application on file. Some people actually commented on the tape, you know, if they thought it was good. I actually have a still have the letter from the Dallas Blackhawks really? where they complimented me on the tape, but said they already have an announcer, you know, years later I would wind up being their announcer. But um, in Muskegon, uh, the guy apparently was impressed by the fact that I had gone to an Ivy league school. He was from new Haven and was the guy who owned the team and was tied in with um, Yale on a number of different things. He was impressed that I had gone to Brown. So he put my tape on the top. And as it turned out, his announcer quit in the middle of the summer, um, largely because this owner was so hard to work for. And the, the announcer didn't have another job. He just couldn't take it anymore. And he walked out one day because when you're doing those minor league jobs, you're not just the announcer. You're also selling advertising and selling season tickets and you're working year round. And apparently, you know, the, I don't know what the final straw was, but the announcer just walked out one day, went to lunch and didn't come back. And the owner, a guy named Jerry, called me up and, you know, we talked on the phone for an hour. And the next day he offered me the job. Wow. And I had graduated from Brown a few weeks earlier, was actually working at Brown in my student job, continuing that so I could pay the rent. I was working as a janitor. And I went from working as a janitor at Brown to being the director of public relations and the broadcaster for the Muskegon Mohawks. I think I took a cut in pay. <laughs> but wow. um, it was a, it was a great opportunity. You know, we broadcast every game. I did the press notes and I went out as often as I could and spoke to rotary clubs and uh, little league banquets and anybody who would listen. We had a little video that we showed back then and I would bring a bag of hockey equipment and put it on one of the people at the meeting and then bang them with a stick and, you know, throw a couple of pucks at them to show how great the equipment was. And it was, it was fantastic. And it was as much fun as I thought it would be. And even though I wasn't getting paid much, you know, it was more than enough to live on. And that's how I got started in this career. Let's see. I did a deep dive on the, if you had asked me a year ago that you're going to spend time doing a deep dive on the Muskegon Mohawks of the IHL, but if my timing is right with you, Eric, the leading scorer was from Montreal, Canada, and if you remember him, Luis Frijon. Lu yeah, and we we he actually said it Frigon. No way. Yeah, here here yeah, I am he, working on my French, and this guy Frigon. He said he said Frigon. Um, he was only the leading scorer because the guy who was the most talented player and who had led the league in scoring like three or four years in a row was named Gary Ford. And the previous year, he had had such a good year that the Montreal Canadiens had signed him and sent him to Nova Scotia, which was their AAA club. And he didn't like it there. He wasn't happy. He was a little guy. 
and he was getting knocked around up there and really not having a whole lot of success. So the Canadians um, made an arrangement where they sent him back to Muskegon. He was still assigned a player, but went back to Muskegon. We were allowed to have four of those guys in that league, four guys who were on NHL contracts. And Gary Ford was one of them. So if, if you have the whole team stats for that 72-73 season, you'll see Gary Ford on there. But he didn't play as many games as everybody else, but he probably had just as just about as many points. And this is prior, obviously, to internet, to TV, on buses. I mean, how did you spend your time? I mean, you did you have to lug a typewriter around as far as putting out press releases as you were the public relations manager as well? I didn't because we didn't stay overnight. We we were doing these bus trips and coming back the same night. Uh, the Most of the teams were within about four or five hour bus ride. We went to Port Huron, Michigan, which is where Doc Emmerich was working. We went to Flint, Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan, Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, Dayton, Toledo, and Columbus, Ohio, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the one long trip where we stayed overnight, but just for a weekend, was Des Moines. And that was an eight-hour bus ride. So normally we would go on the bus trip. We would come home. We'd get home at some ridiculous hour in the morning. And then I had to be at my desk at 9 a.m. because my desk was closest to the ticket window. And I was the guy selling tickets in the morning. We had a girl who came in at noon and would sell tickets the rest of the day. But from 9 to noon... I was manning the ticket window in addition to writing my press releases or doing whatever else I was doing. I was going to ask you about this in Dallas, and then we'll get, you know, how you got to Dallas. But I'm guessing Muskegon. Was Brown also chicken wire? Uh, Brown had chicken wire uh, when I started, but by the time I graduated, they had glass. Muskegon was chicken wire the whole time I was there. Uh, there were a couple of newer buildings in that league. Saginaw was a brand new building. Kalamazoo was a brand new building. And they had glass. But the majority of the buildings uh, still had chicken wire there. Were there chicken mar- wire marks on the players? <laughs> Occasionally, like- a, a jersey would rip. Wow. Um, and there were pinholes in the players in some of those rinks where fans sitting in the first row would bring these long hat pins. And when a player was pushed up against the the chicken wire from the opposing team would stick him with a pin. No. (laughs) Wow. Oh, and you know, we had all, all sorts of episodes where players climbed up over the chicken wire to go into the stands after fans. And it was, it was a zoo, you know, I'm sure most, People listening to this broadcast, if they're hockey fans and and listening to the podcast, have seen the movie Slapshot. Yep, it was that caliber of hockey, and it was that caliber of travel, and it was that kind of a scene as well in the bars post game. It was crazy. Uh, the Muskegon Mohawks were the only professional team in Western Michigan in any sport, and they were they were gods and. I, you know, I, I had never considered when I went out there that I was going to be some sort of major celebrity, but I was anybody who had anything to do with that hockey team was, was big man on campus in that town. That's so cool. And, and from a description standpoint, 
you know, you hear announcers now say pinned up against the glass. What would you say? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's a good question. Sometimes we'd say against the fence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'd say against the wire. That's fascinating. And sometimes he would just say against the boards, you know, even though his upper body was obviously not on the boards, but on the wire. And, you know, it was interesting because you couldn't, a player couldn't pass off the glass the way that they do in you know, in arenas now, you couldn't bank one off the screen and expect it to go anywhere where you had any idea where it was going to go. That was just not something you could do. So you start on the East Coast with New York, Brown University. Now you're in Michigan. How do you make your way south to this city called Dallas? Yeah, well, I was about ready to give it up. Yeah, and I figured if I had spent three years in Muskegon, which I did, and I couldn't get a a better job, meaning in a triple-A league, uh, then I must not be very good. And I sent letters with a cassette to four or five NHL announcers asking for a critique and asking them if I was wasting my time. I did not get a reply from any of them, which was really disappointing. Now, I don't know for sure that they ever received it, you know, I sent it to them, care of their team. Um, but I never got a reply from any of them. So I figured that I must really suck and they don't want to tell me. So I decided that if I didn't get a better job after three years, I was going to go to law school. And one weekend when the Muskegon Mohawks were playing in Des Moines, I went to Drake University and I took the LSAT. And I got applications from all these warm weather schools. I had had enough of the snow every day in Muskegon. Yep. And I was applying to UCLA and USC and Arizona State. I was going to take a shot at Stanford and and Cal Berkeley just in case I could get in. But all warm weather places, Pepperdine. Um, And as I was doing all that work, getting ready for that, I read in the hockey news that the 
announcer for the Oklahoma City Blazers, which was Toronto's AAA team in the Central League, uh, was giving up the hockey job because he had been hired by Oklahoma University to do their football and basketball, a guy named John Brooks. And so the hockey job was open. And I got on the phone back then. You know, you didn't have cell phones or anything. You you got on the telephone. You yep. called directory information for Oklahoma City. You asked for the number of the Oklahoma City Blazers. And a woman answered the phone, and I asked, who's your general manager? And she said, that's Ray Miron, sir. And I said, could I please speak to him? And she put me through to Ray Miron, who turned out not only to be the general manager, but also the coach. Oh, wow. And he said, yeah, you're actually the first guy to call. He said it was in the hockey news this week. You're the first guy to call. The job's wide open. Uh, send me your stuff, and I'll get back to you. So I... I, I always had a tape made up, you know, in case a job popped up. So I I sent him a tape and sent him some of the press releases and program stories that I'd written since, you know, he told me that would be part of the job too. And he called me back, no, maybe a month later. And he said, you're a finalist for the job. And what I'd like you to do is fly to Montreal when we have the annual NHL meetings uh, I think it was the first week in June. And I will interview you and the other finalists. I said, great. And so I flew to Montreal. And the first night I was there, he took me out to dinner. And he drank rather heavily. And every time he ordered a drink, I drank. I ordered a drink. Oh. And we had a really good time. <laughs> And I remember going back to the hotel room and I was, I was wasted, but I felt really good about, you know, having gotten along with him and I thought I had impressed him and, you know, I thought I had a good, a good shot at the job because, you know, since he was coaching the team too, he was looking not just for a broadcaster. He's also looking for somebody who he's going to be hanging out with on the road. Um, You know, the broadcaster and the trainer were the only other two guys who were traveling with the team other than the players. So I went out with him the first night and apparently there was only one other finalist and he interviewed him the second night. And he called me about 11 o'clock the second night in my hotel room. And he said, Hey, Eric, this is Ray. I just want to tell you, you got the job. Oh, I said, wow, that's fantastic. He said, I just, I have this problem though. And he had obviously been drinking a lot again. And he says, I have this problem though. I said, what's that? He said, I don't know how to tell Mike Emmerich that he didn't get the job. Wow. And I don't think Mike drinks very much. (laughs) And I honestly believe that that's the reason I got the job. Wow. That he was looking for a wingman on the road who would go out and drink with him every night. And, you know, I've been out with, with, with doc and you know he'll have a beer or two but i can't imagine that he had five or six or seven or eight drinks that night (laughs) as i had the night before (laughs) so i'll tell people that you know i got a i got a job that kept me in this business because i knew how to drink and what kids ask me what they should do to prepare for a job in broadcast they say learn how to drink it might come in handy one day (laughs) I'm sure you and Doc have had some laughs about that story. We've talked about it. Yeah. And as it turned out, it worked out even better for him 
because he wound up getting a job in Maine uh, with the Flyers Farm Club. And then the following year, Gene Hart, who was their play-by-play guy, I believe he had a heart attack, if I'm not mistaken, but he had to miss some games. And Doc went up there and did the games, and they realized how great he was. And at the end of that season, Gene retired, and Doc became the, the voice of the Flyers. And that's how his NHL career began. Wow. And so now all of a so sudden, the, you're essentially in the AAA of the NHL, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Feeling pretty good. I'm working for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and we've got players going back and forth between the, the Maple Leafs and the Blazers. And Jim Gregory, who was the general manager of the Maple Leafs, he was there all the time. And we had, you know, we had uh, first-round draft choices playing there. Jack Valaket and Don Ashby played in the NHL for a long time. We had Blaine Stoughton, who had played in the in the NHL for many years and was kind of on the tail end of his career. You know, we had a lot of a lot of big name guys in that league, and playing in a first class arena in Oklahoma City that held about ten thousand people, and not drawing very well. And at the end of the season, uh, the Maple Leafs decided, and this was a trend back then, that they were losing too much money on their AAA team, and they wanted to share a AAA team. And they were going to share it with Chicago, who had their team in Dallas, the Dallas Blackhawks. Hmm. So the, those two NHL teams decided to go in together on a farm club and that it would be in Dallas rather than in Oklahoma City. And I got very lucky that the guy who was doing the games in Dallas and also doing the PR, a guy named Frank Falesi, had decided that he was going to leave the hockey club and start his own PR agency. So the job was actually opening up right at the time I needed it to be open. And so they brought me from Oklahoma City to Dallas. And that's how I became the voice of the Dallas Blackhawks in the fall of 1976. What was it like calling games at the Dallas Fairgrounds? It was brutal because it it was just what we talked about. The press box was on the end. Yeah. And you could, players didn't have numbers on the front of their jerseys. And... Back then, they weren't all wearing helmets. There were still some players who did not have helmets on, so you could see their blonde hair flowing. We had Randy Carlisle back then, who you know went on to coach for a long sure. time in the NHL. He might still be coaching. I'm not sure. But um, Rick Bonus was playing for Tulsa. He had long hair flowing along. And yeah. You could recognize some guys from their hair. Um, but most guys were wearing helmets, and it made it hard to recognize them when they were heading your way you know, coming from the other end of the rink. Plus, if there was a scramble in front of the goal on the other end of the rink, you just waited for the red light to go on. You know, there was a phrase that uh, the Rangers TV announcer, uh, I mean, the the New York Rangers TV announcer, Wynn Elliott used to use when I was a kid. And I think it was probably the same thing. He He probably couldn't see the puck. He would just yell, right out in front. <laughs> and then he wouldn't say another word until something definitive happened. Sure. Either the, the light went on and he would he would yell, score! Or he would say, and it's clear to the corner. Or it's covered up, whatever it is. But he would just yell, right out in front. Probably a million times that season, I just yelled that out and, and waited. And did you have I an analyst with you? Out. Or were you solo? I was solo. Uh, occasionally, we had a player on the injured list who was capable of doing color for me. 
most of those guys uh, would have been dangerous to put them on the air. <laughs> I think the FCC would have stepped in yeah. in most cases. Yeah. But the, the best part of it, though, was that a lot of NHL people uh, would come down and they would sit right next to me and usually be available to talk to between periods. Rod Gilbert came down one time, you know, one of my boyhood heroes with the New York Rangers. I, I, I didn't even know he was coming. I looked to my right during a commercial break. I said, holy crap, that's that's Rod Gilbert. And I took off my headset and introduced myself to him. And, you know, he did the between periods interview with me. We had several nights where Bobby Orr came down. Bobby Orr had signed with the Blackhawks uh, and blown out his knee. That's correct. Yeah. And they basically sent him uh, all over as a goodwill ambassador. And he came down to Dallas a few times and sat next to me and, you know, also did the between period stuff with me. Every now and then there'd be a scout up there, you know, who would be willing to, to do some color for me. But for the most part, it was a one man broadcast. When you started in Muskegon and then Oklahoma City, now Dallas, you know, you're getting, you know, you're growing older. And was there a maturity as far as your relationship with the players? It was total immaturity. It was, <laughs> I was one of them. You know, I was 26, 27 years old, and we were hanging out together. You know, we were we were all in our 20s. And we were going out and drinking hard after the games and partying. And, you know, most of us were single and we were, we were having a good time. You were one of the boys and one of the boys. And that's, you know, that's still how it is. I think in most minor league sports where the announcer who travels with the team is really considered part of the team. And that's really what it was like, you know, even when I was doing the triple a games here in Dallas, Uh, the term chirping is used. Uh, a lot in hockey it's trash talking and you know you obviously were around players from different regions did you get the hockey vocabulary like for instance you mentioned bonuses flowing hair that would be known as lettuce um you know did you have any hockey terminology that was unique to the sport yeah most of the hockey players terminology was more unique to the chasing of women outside the sport <laughs> rather than rather than the sport itself. Yeah, sure. But sure. there were but there were some of it. Yeah, there were some of it. I, I can't remember specific examples right now, but they had their own terminology. You know, we also had always had French guys. There were always three or four guys from Quebec, you know, whose French was a lot better than their English. And, you know, they had they had a vocabulary all their own and and they were always fun to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. So the Blackhawks had a rare rivalry in this region. We don't see it anymore in that they played the Fort Worth Wings. And that was kind of the big rivalry in town. I'm sure you enjoyed doing those games. It was really heated. You know, that's when we drew big crowds. You know, neither team drew very well. But when they played each other, they had big crowds. Uh, When I got here, they actually had changed the name of the team from the the wings to the Texans because they had gone from being a Detroit Red Wing affiliate to being a New York Islanders affiliate. And when they became an Islanders affiliate, they changed the name to the Texans. Uh, And their logo was somewhat modeled after the Islanders logo, you know, which had the hockey stick in Long Island. The Texans had the hockey stick in the state of Texas. 
But those games were wild. There were lots of fights, both on the ice and in the stands. And in my second year, 1977-78, the two teams played each other in the finals for, I believe it was called the Adams Cup. And it went to seven games at Will Rogers Coliseum in Fort Worth, and it went to overtime. And it was until I did the World Series with the Rangers, it was the single most exciting and dramatic sporting event that I had ever seen live. And it went to overtime almost through an entire 20-minute overtime, and Fort Worth scored a goal and won the game and won the Adams Cup. Wow. And before you knew it, people were jumping out of the stands onto the ice. They were everywhere. The building was just shaking. And uh, I'll I'll never forget that night as long as I live. And that yeah. was the last game that I did as the voice of the Dallas Blackhawks, having them lose in game seven and overtime to Fort Worth for the championship. That was also kind of around the time, take you know, take a step away from hockey for a second, that the Dallas Sportatorium was around. And I'm, I'm asking you because the Iron Claw is out right now, the movie about the Von Erichs, and they were truly superstars in town. Um, that was kind of a fascinating time. And, you know, we talk about legendary barns in the sport and the Sportatorium, which, you know, was one of those legendary barns for wrestling. It was. And people used to ask me all the time, you know, whether the hockey fights were staged like the wrestling matches were. <laughs> I was constantly being asked that because wow. there were so many fights. People didn't believe there could be that many fights just spontaneously, you know, propping up in the course of a game that you know specifically wasn't about fighting. I never went to the sportatorium. Uh, as a kid, my dad really discouraged me from watching professional wrestling and kept telling me how it was fake and it was a waste of time and the matches were fixed. And, you know, he, he pretty much brainwashed me against watching wrestling. So I actually never went to the sportatorium. I'd catch it on TV every now and then with Bill Mercer being yeah. the, being the host, but I never actually went to any of the matches here. Yeah, a absolutely. I remember I was a young kid up in Massachusetts and I could not believe that, world-class championship wrestling slash Texas championship wrestling had the budget to go to Uganda to find this amazing man named Kamala, the Ugandan beast. And years <laughs> later, I show up in Dallas, Sportatorium gone. I find out that the filming in Uganda was actually on the banks of the Trinity River through the bamboo. Yeah, I would watch it on TV when my dad wasn't around, and we had a we had a similar guy. We had a guy named Bobo Brazil. Yes, yes, he was he was one of the the marquee attractions, and yeah, it really was international. We had a guy named Argentino Apollo, who was from Argentina. There was an Antonino Rocca, who was from yep. some country in South America, yep. and we had the Flying Carpentier brothers from <laughs> Quebec. Just legendary. they were a tag team. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely. That is that is amazing. This is uh, so much fun telling stories with Eric Nadell, the Hall of Fame voice of the Texas Rangers. Okay, let's get into the transition into baseball because, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, everyone thought that you were just a guy who came through the ranks. Little did they know that you went from the Blackhawks to the Texas Rangers, right? 
I did. And what happened was after that um, seventh game of the Adams Cup playoffs, a couple of days later, Jim Gregory, who was the general manager of the Maple Leafs, one of the two parent clubs, walked into my office at uh, Fair Park Coliseum. And he said, I've got bad news for you. We've decided that uh, we're losing too much money here. And the Blackhawks agree with us. We're going to move our team to Moncton, New Brunswick. Wow. And I said, oh, I spent three years in Muskegon. I don't I don't think I could handle a winter in Moncton, New Brunswick. And he said, you don't have to worry about it. We couldn't possibly hire you in Canada to broadcast hockey games. We have to hire a Canadian. Oh, he said, so start looking for a job. So I got those tapes out again and started sending them out. And in the meantime, the Chicago Blackhawks had a job open. Their announcer was retiring. Lloyd Pettit was his name. And he had been there for many, many years. He was fantastic. And his signature call was a shot. He wouldn't say he scores. It was always a shot and a goal. But he was um, he was amazing. Or he'd say a shot and a rebound. And a shot and a rebound. And a shot and a goal. People loved him. And he was retiring. And I was one of five finalists for that job. I don't know if they were just being polite to me, uh, telling me that I was one of the finalists, but I was a finalist for the job and I, you know, I really badly wanted it, of course, but I was only 27 years old and the Chicago Blackhawks, they were owned by the Wurtzes, William and Arthur Wurtz. They were very, very conservative. And I really didn't expect that they were going to hire me. And we did some crazy minor league promotions with the Dallas Blackhawks and the, the Maple Leafs front office thought it was great. They, they thought it was really cool. Jim Gregory, who was their general manager was very supportive. Tommy Ivan was the general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks. And then Bob Pulford came in and replaced him. And they were both very conservative and not so complimentary of all the promotions that we were doing to try and draw people into the, into the games in Dallas So I didn't expect to get the job, but I was a finalist for it. In the meantime, I was hoping I'd get another minor league hockey job. And there was there were rumors that the Vancouver Canucks were going to come into Dallas and and put their team in Dallas. They had been sharing a franchise in Tulsa with the Atlanta Flames. And there were rumors that Vancouver was going to have their own team and have it in Dallas. So I thought maybe if I just, you know, bided my time, Vancouver would come in and they'd hire me to to do the games in Dallas. Hmm. And then completely out of the blue, I get a phone call from the Texas Rangers director of broadcasting, a guy named Roy Parks. And he says, uh, you know, we really like the way you do hockey games. Have you ever done baseball? And I lied and I told him that I had. Sure, absolutely. I had actually never done them, but I'd listened to a million games. And while I was doing the Dallas Blackhawks games, I was attending a lot of Ranger games and listening to him on the radio and watching him on TV. And he said, well, you know, we're looking to hire a young announcer because one of our radio guys, Bill Merrill, is going to retire in a year or two. And we'd kind of like to groom his successor. They also needed a guy to help them sell advertising. And they were looking to hire two different people. And as it turned out, they let me audition by doing four games into a cassette recorder late in the 78 season. And they listened to the games and they said, you know, you showed a lot of progress, um, but 
you know, I don't know. And I said, listen, if you hire me to do the games, I'll do the other job too. And you won't have to hire two people because in the minor leagues, you always did all the sales anyway. Yeah. I was used to doing it. I was, and I didn't mind working in the off season. I had nothing else to do. I was single then. And, uh, that's how I got the job. They didn't have to pay moving expenses. You know, I was already in town. I was very well vetted locally in the local media. You know, I had been developing relationships with everybody in the media, trying to get them to come out and, you know, cover our minor league hockey team in a otherwise major league town. And that's how I wound up getting the job. And I was fearful that I wouldn't be any good doing baseball because the sports are so different. So I continued doing hockey and the, the first off season uh, after I did baseball, I did the Fort Worth Texans games. Vancouver did come into Dallas with the team, but they didn't broadcast the games, but Fort Worth, since they had won the championship, all of a sudden got a radio contract, which they hadn't had in many years. And they hired me to do the Fort Worth games. Then the following year, uh, Oklahoma City needed a broadcaster, and I did the Oklahoma City games. Uh, so for two years after I had already been doing baseball, in the offseason, I continued doing the minor league hockey games uh, kind of as a way of protecting myself sure. in case I got fired. And also because I just loved doing it so much. Yeah. And it was extra money, and it was really fun. And I I didn't want to stop doing it. I, I had such a good time broadcasting those games. When you got that call that you were going to be a Rangers announcer and you had, after years of being in the minors, you are now going to be in the majors. Was there a moment that you stopped or was it like, all right, you know, now I have to find another play-by-play gig as well. I mean, did you, did you take it in and say like, you know, I'm going to the bigs? I, yeah, I was debating it because, you know, at the time, again, I was harboring delusions that I might get the Chicago Blackhawks job. And they were they didn't seem to be making a whole lot of progress. And I kept actually stalling off the Ranger job, hoping that I'd hear something about the Blackhawks job. And finally, as we got closer and closer to the end of the baseball season, uh, this guy, Roy Park, said, you know, I'm I'm going to need a decision next week or else we're going to just have to start doing a search. And the last thing in the world I wanted was for them to do a, a search and realize how much better every minor league baseball announcer was than I was at doing baseball games back then. And so either way, I figured, well, this is amazing. I'm going to have a major league baseball job. And, you know, that's really when I was a kid, the two things I envisioned doing was either doing National Hockey League or doing Major League Baseball. And yeah. I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I'm going to go to Yankee Stadium, and I'm going to do games from there. And I'm going to go do games at Fenway, which I had gone to all the time when I was in college, you know, and see these other stadiums I've never seen before. Uh, I might not be any good at it, but let's let's take a chance, give it a shot. And keep doing hockey just in case. So you've still got your, you know, your foot in the door there in case things don't work out. Really is amazing how life works because I wanted to ask you about the 1980 Olympic team because Al Michaels is on the record several times saying like, you know, 
when they asked, you know, does anyone know hockey? And he said, sure, I do. You know, and you know, I wanted to play this clip and then, because it's so iconic, but I wanted to, uh, I remember where I was as a kid, so I'm going to play the final 10 seconds and then I want you to tell me was, did this call affect you and where you were when the miracle on ice happened? 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. So, Eric, I had no idea as a kid that that was taped and wouldn't work today. And that call and that team really changed the nation um, where hockey took center stage and the country was going through a difficult time. And here's this guy, Al Michaels, and there's still that running debate. Did he plan that call? Um, just a, kind of an amazing hockey folklore. So wanted to get your thoughts on that iconic call. Yeah, the, first of all, you know, when I started watching the Olympic Games and Al was doing them, and, you know, I loved Al already I, as a baseball announcer or a football announcer, I was kind of offended that he was doing the hockey games. Interesting. I really thought they should have hired one of the great NHL announcers to do those games. You know, I didn't think he did a very good job of hockey play-by-play. As it turned out, he probably did exactly what was needed for an audience watching the game that didn't know anything about hockey. He probably did it exactly right. But for me, as a hockey announcer and purist, I didn't think he was very good as a hockey play-by-play announcer. But then, of course, I, I was watching that final game in, in my apartment here in Dallas. And, yeah, the call was just, as an announcer who studies other announcers, it was just so brilliant. You know, the instant it came out of his mouth, it was like, oh, my God, that that's going to be a classic forever. And it certainly, it certainly has been, you know, whether he planned it or not is a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's awfully good. That could conceivably have come out of his mouth spontaneously. You know, the wave in Scully or, or Doc Emmerich, you know, came up with so many gems spontaneously, but uh, that's awfully impressive. Yeah, I'm going to repeat it because we're talking about this. My partner on this podcast, Craig Ludwig, was actually invited to training camp for the Olympic team and it was his birthday that weekend so he just basically went because it was a free opportunity to drink some beers and party with the boys and he said somehow a chair ended up through the through the window he's one of Herb Brooks first cuts and as he's told me on spits and suds several times probably not the best move in my career (laughs) yeah yeah. Wow. But just such an iconic uh, moment. So I wanted to ask you about this. I was actually at this game and I wanted to know from the man himself. And I'm talking about the famous fight between Ruggie Odor and Jose Bautista. If this had a hockey tie in. So let's play the cut. Beltre picks to his left, throws to second for one, Ruggie to first, and Batista goes after him, and Ruggie pushes Batista, and they're in a fight at second base. Ruggie threw a couple of punches at Batista, and the dugouts have emptied. This is a real Donnybrook. So the term Donnybrook, did that come to you from hockey? 
<laughs> definitely. Nice. Definitely. That's that is sheer reaction. Yeah, when uh, when we would have those bench clearing fights in hockey, which happened a lot in the minor leagues, uh, that's what we called them. We we called them Donnie Brooks. And you know, most baseball fights are not Donnie Brooks. They are, you know, as I call them, they are incidents or they're altercations. They are not Donnie Brooks and they're not brawls. They're a bunch of guys standing around, you know, maybe holding each other and maybe not. But this was actually a fight where a bunch of guys were throwing punches and wrestling and actually uh, engaged in combat, which is what a Donnie Brook is. I mean, you explained it perfectly. And you know what? What I wish was I could have seen the actual punch that knocked Batista down. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were a little too far away. Sure. And I wasn't watching the TV monitor. Uh, I don't know that they got it initially anyway, but um, I couldn't see the actual punch knocking him down. I could I could see Rugi throwing punches. And next thing I knew, there were just a million people in there. And, you know, Batista was down, but I didn't know how he had gotten down. Yeah. So that's one of those games where everyone says they were there. And I was actually <laughs> I was actually there, but that was a blowout. And I remember Matt Bush taking the mound as I was leaving the game <laughs> to beat traffic, Eric. And I live vicariously through you, and I could not believe the chills that were coming through me as you described that. And that goes back to that whole theater of mind where where I've always appreciated you is the description of the colors on the uniforms and just the description of the players. I know if they're wearing, you know, mid sleeves or long sleeves. In fact, sometimes I'll speak up at UNT and I'll use your, uh, a cut of you as an example, because you create that theater of mind where candidly, I, you know, sometimes I think is missing in today's radio and there's a romance to it as far as calling games through the radio. Yeah, there certainly is for me, you know, and Gavin, that's how it was for me as a kid. And, you know, part of it, I think, when I was growing up, not every game was on TV. We didn't have color TV. Uh, so the games, even when you saw the games, they were in black and white. And even on TV, the announcers would talk about what the color of the uniforms was. So that was just part of the whole thing in, in painting the word picture. And then as I started, you know, getting schooled on how to do play by play, uh, you know, one of the guys who was teaching me at Brown, who was a student, you know, said, you know, that classic thing where when you're a TV announcer, you put captions on pictures. And when you're a radio announcer, you have to create the pictures and, you know, make believe that your audience is blind and they, haven't seen these guys and you've got to describe them. And when I was a kid, we didn't necessarily know what all the players looked like, particularly the guys from the other team. So the announcers would always describe, you know, he's, he's, a he's a big strapping fella from <laughs> Mississippi. You know, he's a, he's a big country lad from uh, the Hills of Montana. And, or they'd say, you know, he's a, he's a wiry you know, he's a wiry fella standing far from the plate, deep in the batter's box, you know, hunched over. Uh, 
they were always describing guys' stances and what the pitcher looks like. You know, again, the sleeves and is he wearing his uniform blousey or or tight? And are his pant legs pulled up high or are they low? You know, all of that creating uh, the picture that the listener can form, you know, in his own imagination. The more detail you give, the better a picture the listener can have. And and to me, um, I think it is getting lost. And a lot of times, I'd say more often than not, when young announcers, you know, send me their their stuff to critique, that's one of my most frequent criticisms is that they're not describing enough. They're so intent on providing all of the information that's now available for us. And all that stuff is great. I mean, we have so much more we can, you know, tell about a player from the analytics and the statistics and stuff, but they're foregoing the description of what these guys look like, assuming, I guess, that everybody knows what the guy looks like uh, or how he wears his uniform. And, you know, I'm just not going to make that assumption. You know, I'm still thinking that the first obligation I have is to paint the word picture. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that rare person to explain to me why the movie was better than the book, because the book, you create the character Uh in your head. And I feel as though you are able to create that character in my head while I'm listening. That's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, the best compliments we ever get as play-by-play announcers are the ones we get from blind people who tell us, yeah, I can actually envision envision the field. I can envision everything because of the way you're describing it. Announcers always, you know, when I was a kid, would tell you in a hockey game or a basketball game or a football game, are they moving from left to right or from right to left on your radio dial? Yeah. You know, the, the New York Giants announcer, Marty Glickman, he would always say that. And the Giants wearing their dark blue uniforms are going from left to right on your radio dial. Wow. And it, it was great. You know, it, it, it painted that picture and you could follow the, you'd follow the ball from left to right. And, you know, not many announcers do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. When you go on road trips to the Blue Jays, do you visit the Hockey Hall of Fame? I've been there several times. Yeah, I love it. It's, you know, and it's conveniently located. It's a short walk from where we stay most of the time. And I love looking at, uh, I love looking at the wall of masks. That's my, that's my favorite room in there, but there, there are lots of them. And, you know, there are so many players, you know, I've been following hockey for so long now, you know, I remember the older names. I'm more familiar with what those guys did. Yeah. You know, the guys in the Stan Makita, Bobby Hull, you know, Gordie Howe era where every team in the original six, you know, had two or three guys who went on to the hall of fame. You know, I'm actually more familiar with those guys than with, you know, some of the more current hall of famers. Yeah. I still think I can feel a sore on my hand from when I shook Gordy Howe's hand. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was just, I'll never forget that. And that like that to me was his message, you know, like I still got a kid. Yeah. It, it and was you know, the other thing for me is, you know, my closest friend in hockey, probably in all the years that I did, it was Roger Nielsen. He yes. was our coach with the Dallas Blackhawks my first year. And that was his only year as a minor league coach. He had come from the Peterborough Peets to Dallas to coach 
um, the Maple Leafs AAA club. And then they hired him to go to Toronto the next year. And of course, he became one of the legendary coaches of all time. He invented most of the defensive techniques used today. He was the first guy to keep track of the hits, face-offs won and lost, um, giveaways, all kinds of things that are normal stats today were not hockey stats until Roger came along and started keeping track of them and telling people about them. Uh, but I love going up there and, you know, and he's enshrined in there and, you know, seeing his plaque and reading about the other coaches too. You know, the, the legendary guys when I was growing up, Scotty Bowman and, and the, the Rangers had Emil Francis, you know, every, every team had a coach, it seemed, who was there for a really long time. And, you know, I, I love going up and reading about all those guys. You're making me want to go now. It's funny, Gavin. I just looked at the Rangers' schedule uh, the other day and realized that that Toronto trip this year is one I might not be able to go oh, on. Oh, man. Now I'm feeling bad about that. <laughs> we'll live vicariously through Jared. I don't know if Jared's been yeah. there yet, but I have to – I have to convince because Jared's a hockey fan and Hixie's wife's a, a big hockey. There's a lot of hockey talk going on in the booth. Yeah, Hixie did minor league hockey for quite a while yeah. when he was doing baseball in the minors. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to end on this, and we appreciate the time. This never gets old. I think this is probably the 10,120th time you've heard your final call. Two balls, two strikes. Spores, kicks, and fires. He struck him out looking. It's over. It's over. The Rangers have won the World Series. Ranger fans, you're not dreaming. The Rangers are the World Series champions. After 52 years in Texas, 63 years of the franchise, the wait is over, and the celebration has begun. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Still get chills, Eric. That, that's a special call. And the fact that it was played all over town and it's just going to live forever, that must be pretty special. And just, you know, take us through um, that call. But then afterwards, because I know for myself, I, there are times, Eric, I still don't believe it happens. As Yeah, you know, I, I mean, have to be reminded every day. Yeah, absolutely. We're just so emotionally invested. And then... You know, one of the more special moments on 105.3 The Fan was, you know, Jared on the post game saying how happy he was for you and breaking down. We won't get into Mike Bassick opening up potato chips while that was happening. <laughs> I don't know if you heard ever heard that story, Eric. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I should have had that cut ready. So if you listen real closely, Jared's doing this massive monologue on how special this is. And you can just hear potato chips opening in the background. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> and, you know, if you know and you love Mike Bassick, that makes total sense. So take us take us through just that moment. I know you said, you know, in past interviews that you had a feeling they were going to clinch that night. And then just afterwards, did you kind of kick back with Hixie and Jared and just, like, take it all in in the booth? Yeah, I mean, I just, just kind of collapsed back into my chair. Um, you know, after I said, and the celebration has begun and almost tipped the chair over, but didn't. And I just felt just emotionally drained, you know, the, because that feeling that we all had all along, all along, this, somehow this is going to get screwed up. 
somehow this isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, and then they score the four runs in the top half of the ninth and it's it's a five run game and you know it is going to happen. Uh and you know, I've again I doubled down on deciding that I had to assure people that they weren't dreaming, you know, that this that this was for real, but I still felt like I was dreaming. You know, when I collapsed back in my chair, I really did feel that I was dreaming until you know, Jared started doing interviews with players and we started seeing the the scaffolding being set up for the platform on the field to present the trophy and, and all of that stuff, which kind of hammered home the fact that this this really was happening. Amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, every year you do an amazing birthday bash at the Kessler. Um, you're a big mental health advocate and we appreciate that here. And... uh you know, I'm glad you use 105.3 The Fan as one of your forums to get the word out as far as mental health. You do a lot of charity work in town. You're a big supporter of Jared's Sandlot Charity. You came in for KNC uh, for Peaceathon, and the guys absolutely love that. So massive thanks, and massive thanks for taking us um, down this hockey roller coaster of a life that you've lived we got to baseball at the end, but you know what? I'm kind of glad that baseball took a secondary seat and because every other day you're a Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster, but it was a heck of a run in hockey, Eric. Thanks. And, you know, I'm still a hockey nerd, Gavin. Yeah. You know, I'm, this year, for the first time this year, I've actually started looking at hockeyreference.com. Nice. You know, I want to know the face-off stats of the Stars guys. You know, I I... Roger Nielsen hammered that in me so emphatically. Absolutely. That Puck it was possession. so important. And I'm, you know, I checked again today and the stars ranked fifth in the league in winning faceoffs, their faceoff percentage. You know, Jamie Ben's over 60%. Pavelski isn't having the year that he's had in the past in winning faceoffs. You know, that, that's how big a nerd I am. Yeah. On on hockey. That you know, I'm looking at stuff like that, in addition, obviously, to the plus minus rankings and you know and the goals and the assists but you know i love going to the stars games i went to my first allen americans game last week yeah i really enjoyed that teddy bear toss i urge night. people to yeah i i urge people to go out there it's it's a wonderful rink it holds five thousand. all the seats are great the game's a little bit slower than the nhl which actually makes it for me a better spectator sport um you can follow the puck more easily and guys have more of a chance to carry the puck and display their skills a little bit more. And uh, I think that uh, I think that people like there's more hitting, which people tend to like. So uh, go out there. Um, you know, they have a new owner this year, uh, an NFL player named yes, Miles Jack. Absolutely. Team. Yeah. And I'd love to see uh, he and his mom, who are the co-owners of the team, be successful out there. It's a tremendous uh, opportunity, you know, to see hockey close up. And it's not that far to get to. I live in Dallas and it takes me a half an hour, about the same thing it takes me to get out to Arlington. If you live in Plano or Richardson or Frisco, anywhere up that way, you're you're much closer than you are to AAC. So uh, give the Allen Americans games a try. They're a lot cheaper too. Yeah, yeah. Great family, great family atmosphere. And the Americans put on a great show and uh, super glad that you, uh, you promoted them. And it's so glad to see that hockey is uh, thriving. I know you don't have the time, like, you know, Doc Emmerich did uh, a baseball game for the Pirates, 
but you know, maybe not play by play, but it would be cool to hear hear you in an analyst role. Uh, I'll, I'll think about that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it would be, it would certainly be fun. I'd have to become more more familiar with the players, and I don't know if I uh, yeah. if I have the time and the energy to do that. But well, uh, as someone it, once it certainly would be fun. As someone once told me, all you have to say in between periods, they just got to put more pucks in the net, get in front of the goalie. And <laughs> <laughs> this has been special, sir. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. So great going back and living some great memories as far as uh, your hockey history. Thanks. This is a lot of fun. That's going to do it for another Spits and Suds one-timer right here on 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for listening.